Welcome to this podcast of the Sunday Message from Hope Gateway in Portland, Maine. We'd love to have you join us for worship Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., currently on Zoom and broadcast live on Facebook. Visit our website at hopegateway.com to learn more. Whether you live near or far, we hope you find this message to be meaningful. Wherever you are, join us in doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with God. My name is Ophelia Hukini. She, her, and hers are my pronouns. I am the worship coordinator here at Hope Gateway. And um, today I'm actually calling in from Attleboro, Massachusetts, which is like right on the Rhode Island border. I am hanging out with my good friends, Yolanda and Eunice, um, who've actually been to Hope Gateway a couple of times. So y'all might remember them. Um, if not, that's fine. I wanted to talk today in our last week in this short series titled What Helps and What Hurts um, about self-care, community care, and collective healing. And um, I will try to make this as short of a message as possible because I realized, wow, I had a lot to say, it turns out. So two weeks ago, Sarah kicked us off and she talked about systems of mutuality. I love that term. And then last week, uh, when some of us were in person and some of us were joining online, Katie Mears reminded us that God's capacity is in every person. And to be honest, I mostly feel like they've said everything that needs to be said, right? To be plugged into the great work of the spirit and to recognize and reply to the divinity of one another. That's kind of the point of it all, isn't it? That's kind of the main message. Most of the time, most of us are in the position to be helpers, but that is not a permanent position, nor is it a seat of unique honor. Sometimes we're in the position to need help. We are helpers and we need help, right? We engage in missions and we receive good news. We are supporters and we need support. In ebbs and flows, we do this cyclically and dependably. Like, like Katie and Sarah have both said, this is not a series with answers or prescriptions. As we near the holidays, as Erica was speaking about earlier, especially Thanksgiving and Christmas, we're also finding Hope Gateway in a unique position to consider how we want to be in partnership with organizations and communities and peoples to do God's work. Now that we are a freestanding congregation with none of these predetermined relationships or missional efforts that we're paying into, which by the way, are not inherently bad, that was just the system that we happened to leave, we are now drawn into an invitation to define what kinds of partnerships we do want to be a part of. So I hope that these three weeks will be kind of like drops of dye in the water, like perfume in the water, prompting some curiosity when we have these discussions uh, more in depth and earnest. So today, let's hear an excerpt from a letter from Paul to the church in Rome. And in Romans, um, where are we? Romans 12, 6 through 13, he says this. We have different gifts that are consistent with God's grace that's been given to us. If your gift is prophecy, you should prophesy in proportion to your faith. If your gift is service, devote yourself to serving. If your gift is teaching, devote yourself to teaching. If your gift is encouragement, devote yourself to encouraging. The one giving should do it with no strings attached. The leader should lead with passion. The one showing mercy should be cheerful. 
Love should be shown without pretending. Hate evil and hold on to what is good. Love each other like the members of your family. Be the best at showing honor to each other. Don't hesitate to be enthusiastic. Be on fire in the spirit as you serve the Lord. Be happy in your hope. Stand your ground when you're in trouble and devote yourselves to prayer. Contribute to the needs of God's people and welcome strangers into your home. Um, I just wanted to say that as rereading, as I was rereading this, I'm realizing that um, when he says, if your gift is service, devote yourself to serving. If your gift is teaching, devote yourself to teaching. At no point does Paul say like, you got to do this one thing that you have gifts in. And we're encouraged to do some of each of them. But um, we're not saying like, oh, if you don't have the spiritual gift of service, don't worry about serving. I don't think that that's what Paul is intending to say. This part of Paul's letter to the church in Rome is kind of like a condensed, repeated version of what he's actually said in some of his other epistles, his other letters. It's not particularly theological, right? It's more like a litany of how we should give and live, like a to-do list. So, okay, I want to take a wide left turn in the discussion now. By now, you've probably heard about this term self-care, the notion that you have to care for yourself as an act of healing. And so this concept conjures images ranging from scheduling doctor's appointments, eating a nourishing meal, taking a nap if you're tired, to, on the other hand, online lists of things you ought to buy yourself in order to finally feel at peace, usually candles, bath accessories, or something like that. Um, by the way, I love candles and bath accessories, so no hate there. There is a lot I like about this bloom of like self-care phenomenon. But if I'm being honest, I kind of distrust it too, or at least the most visible and sometimes consumption-based face of it that shows up on lists of must-buys and Instagram ads. Because taken to its very consumer-focused conclusion where it's at right now, self-care can become about isolation, independence, and I think kind of an incomplete healing. It can become about how if we just surround ourselves with the right recipe of things, we can survive things like loneliness or burnout. But sometimes your conditions or obstacles are communal or systemic, and we can't really self-care ourselves back to wellness in those cases. So when the problem is poverty or hunger or violence or barriers to access, people can't self-care themselves back to wellness. And when the problem is oppression or exclusion, people can't self-care themselves into healing to begin with. Or at best, what we experience is an incomplete healing. So in those cases, healthy is not really a state that can be returned to, at least not until the oppression or exclusion is gone. So because the term self-care has really worked its way under my skin, I wanted to know its origins. And what I learned both surprised and challenged me. I think it also has a lot to say for Hope Gateway today as we consider how we wanna show up in systems of mutuality, as Sarah called it, in authentic and meaningful partnership with our communities and beyond. As it turns out, self-care has more radical origins than the iteration we're experiencing in mass today. According to URGE, which stands for Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity, the term self-care was coined by the medical community in the 1950s 
to describe actions like personal grooming and exercise that formerly institutionalized peoples could undertake to practice autonomy and foster a sense of self-worth. One moment, sorry. And the term was then popularized by the Black Panthers as a means of describing how they could care for each other and how to prevent burnout from activism. The Black Panthers fought against racial injustice as well as other social ills, including ableism. According to the documentary Crip Camp, which details a camp for, it's a movie on Netflix that details a camp for young adults with disabilities and the journey to the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Black Panthers ethos of self-care also influenced how other marginalized communities cared for each other. And these are communities of peoples who um, were deeply invested in one another's liberations. So since the government would not provide aid to black folks and people with disabilities, and those communities often overlapped, the Black Panther Party established survival programs such as health facilities, education programs, and food distributions. Um, what is on the slide right now is, um, I think, a photo of folks standing underneath a banner that says Black Community Survival Conference, serve the people, body, and soul. And this was in 1972 that they held this conference. Um, so the Black Panthers understood that in order to survive in this world, they had to take care of themselves and one another. So Black people and people, people with disabilities knew then that what they faced could not be beaten back by making the right personal choices or by nobility or hard work alone. And it's important for us right now to also think about the ways in which that has played out this last week. Um, tons of people begging the state, the governor of Oklahoma to grant clemency to Julius Jones, who was scheduled to be executed for a crime that he most likely did not have anything to do with. Um, and that execution has been stayed, but he has still, he still has to serve a life sentence, um, again, for a crime that has not been properly investigated and for which he probably had nothing to do. And just supposing that with the uh, fact that Kyle Rittenhouse will not be serving time for any of the crimes that he committed, it's just this vast gulf um, of realizing that like people are not gonna be able to self-care their way out of the yields that we're experiencing right now. So marginalized peoples couldn't at this time bootstrap their way into wellness. A lot of them still can't. They needed to give according to the gifts they'd been given and to also receive from the gifts that others had been given. Had been given. And just as oppression ripples, so from an individual to a family, to a community, and then also back in again, kind of like concentric circles, healing works like that too. The Black Panther Party's revolutionary concept of self-care showed us that healing works like that. And that community care is also a form of self-care. We cannot call ourselves healed if our communities still have unmet needs for healing. We have gifts to give and we have healing to unleash. And that's what Paul believed too, judging by how he addressed different communities of early Christians with a similar message to what we heard earlier. If your gift is prophecy, you should prophesy in proportion to your faith. If your gift is service, devote yourself to serving. So Paul gives us encouragement to give of what we have been given, to care for our communities and thereby to care for ourselves. 
The Black Panthers model is quite similar actually to that of the early church and its members acted kind of like disciples. And I wanna needle a little deeper on this point about the Black Panthers and about Crip Camp because they remind me of something else I hope that we'll also keep in the front of our minds while we think about how we engage in new partnerships of mission. If you and I have had a personal conversation lately, then I have probably been fangirling to you about this um, podcast that I have been obsessed with. It's called Maintenance Phase. You can find it for free on any of the places where you find podcasts. And it features two co-hosts debunking myths about wellness culture, dieting, and fat phobia, which is basically discrimination and bias against people who have fat bodies. One of the things I love about maintenance phase is that it's equal parts compassionate and brutally honest and ridiculously well-researched. There are so many episodes I've heard where I thought this deserves a Pulitzer Prize. And it weaves together how interconnected forces of oppression are. Fat phobia is rarely just that. It's awful on its own, and it's also linked to racism, economic inequality, and so much more. In one episode, the hosts talk about how it came to be that a lot of people in wealthy nations like the U.S. became obsessed with um, protein consumption, thinking that protein was how we were going to healthy our way out of um, death and dying. And um, it has a lot to do with partly well-intentioned, but um, clearly disastrous, um, ill-informed ideas that British colonizers in the 1970s had. They told African parents that breast milk was inferior to Nestle's baby formula, all the while selling them expensive formula that couldn't be safely kept without refrigeration, which wasn't available. So babies would become sick from this formula and Nestle tried to deny any wrongdoing, even though they heavily marketed formula to parents who didn't need it, but also who couldn't safely feed it to their children. The problem that British colonizers were trying to solve was what they perceived as parents feeding their children the wrong foods or not knowing how to feed their own children, despite that people have been doing that for forever. But the real problem was starvation. And that was both a problem for which European empires were partly responsible and also a problem that a benevolent overlord can't just come in and easily take credit for solving. So I won't give away the crux of the host's findings or conclusions here, even though I did give away a lot, it's still so worth listening to. But I think this paints a clear enough portrait of what happened. People saw a snapshot of suffering and assumed that they knew best how to solve this, the problems of the people who are suffering. And so many times these problems go far deeper and are far more complex than personal choice. They're often about the woefully small slate of choices that people do have, or the only choices remaining in the midst of personal and community tragedy. Our challenge then is to be curious enough to wonder why tragedy and poverty exist because we'll find almost every time that people do not pre-plan or choose their suffering. When someone's suffering seems to be the consequence of personal choice, it's easy for us to do nothing. In fact, it might seem morally imperative for someone to not choose to help because helping might indicate approval of someone's bad choices. But if someone's suffering seems to be tied up in more complicated forces, then to ignore that suffering would be to implicate ourselves in complicity. And 
therein lies the temptation to paint other suffering, sometimes even our own, as the consequence of personal choice alone. Jesus often dug a lot deeper, understanding, for example, that the woman at the well was outcasted because of misogyny, and that a woman, or sorry, that a man lowered in through the roof of a house for healing, both respectability because he was in tremendous pain. Suffering is complicated. Our own suffering is tied up in the suffering of others, but our own healing is as well. We cannot do self-care without doing community care. For someone like me who is pretty introverted and who has a um, unhealthy inclination toward independence, this is hard. When I'm in a position to be a helper, it seems a lot easier to isolate, to think I can solve all my own problems, I can maybe solve other people's problems too. But that's not a permanent position, and nor is it a seat of unique honor. We have different gifts from God, and what we have, we have the opportunity to give, and what we don't, we have the opportunity to receive. So let us stay curious about suffering and healing so that we can be non-prescriptive and cooperative. Our suffering may be intertwined, but thank God, so is our healing. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. To hear more about Hope Gateway and to discover how together we can do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God, visit our website at hopegateway.com.